Welcome to Financial Analyst Warrior Podcast. My name is Mikola Demenko. And my name is Miguel Romain, and this is episode number nine. Well, today we're going to have a very special episode. We're going to talk about real life topics. So the first thing we want to discuss with you, we recently wrote an article about robo-advisors. Who, that's pretty much, um, you know, automatic investing. And it's, uh, it's creating a lot of noise in the investment world. And it might even change the landscape of the whole uh, financial advisor uh you know, the, the whole financial advisor thing. So that's the first topic we want to discuss with you. The other topic is the valuation, the different valuation models that are used. If you're studying, for example, for your, you know, your CFA, you want to get your designation, maybe you want to work as a financial analyst eventually. Um, you know, you, you need to know how to apply a lot of valuation models, but we, you know, we're going to discuss a bit because we worked with students, you know, we worked as analysts, we worked uh, with a lot of people from the industry and we're going to discuss how often people use that or how you know is it used or if it's used at all or what type of valuation models are useful just so we can see that yes it's it's nice to learn stuff but sometimes you know you want to know in real life what do you actually apply what are you using uh, because very often students they you know they ask okay i'm learning all of this stuff but you know what percentage of this will i actually use when i get a job or when I'm actually in the industry, you know, or is something else is used, you know. So we're gonna talk about all of that. So, um, so the first topic is a robo advisor. So what what is that? Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, robo advisors, you know, it's something that is uh, that is r- relatively new. Uh, the term itself has uh, been used maybe for about two or three years, um, and it's a phenomenon that is picking up more and more media attention, media coverage. And it's uh, starting to kind of have an impact on the whole advisory uh, and uh, investment uh, industry. Uh, so basically, the the idea be- behind robo advisors is that you are replacing human investment advisors by uh, computers that basically can replicate many of the uh, uh, strategies or or suggestions that a human advisor can do at a much cheaper uh, rate and uh, pretty much autonomously and available almost around the clock. Um, How it works is that you, as an investor, you open an account. Currently, the the two biggest firms uh, in the US are uh, Wealthfront and and Betterment. And uh, you create an account, you deposit a bit of uh, initial investment you select your profile, your risk characteristics, as well as, let's say, your investment horizon. And then um, you also decide, for example, at what frequency you would like to add a new capital to the account. And then algorithms and computers take over. And every time you have new money coming in, uh, as well as based on the fluctuations of the markets, your account automatically invests in different uh, ETFs. Um, based on your initial uh, allocation, in a way. So it reallocates itself, or how does it work in terms of reallocation? Uh, well, I put new money in, uh, is 
since there's no human being, you know, investing in this fund or that fund, how does it work? The allocation is well uh, is uh, is also done automatically, okay. because based on how you want your money to be invested, new capital is automatically um, being driven to specific uh, to uh, investments, basically. Um, if if the markets go down or go up, then depending on which investments you have, the computers or the algorithms basically decide what you should buy more, what you should sell, um, or where you should basically allocate the money. So where does it invest? Like what's, what type of investments? Are um, currently, most of the investments are actually done with the ETFs. And you know how many ETFs, for example? Like is it the two, three ETFs or... Because uh, I saw, I, I looked at one in Canada, because we have this, like, it's starting to, it's starting in the U.S., obviously, but here in uh, in Canada, we have some uh, similar companies, and it's kind of the same concept. Um, it's through ETF, but I noticed that, you know, when you, you kind of have to dig a, a bit deeper to, to find out really what are the ETFs that this this uh, firm invests in, because I wanted to find out, right, where does it invest? Is it a mutual fund? Is it a, so it's ETFs, but it's there's only a universe of 10 ETFs. So it's it's supposed to be the, the 10 ETF that represents the whole universe of stocks. So, for example, you'll have you know a Canadian stock ETF. You, you're gonna have a U.S. ETF. You're gonna have a let's say a emerging market ETF. You have a, a bond ETF, a corporate bond. Uh, I think there's a government bond. Is also a real estate. So only 10 ETF that are supposed to represent the whole investment uh, universe. So. And it's supposed to cover pretty much everything that you you actually need in a, s- a standard portfolio. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is that the the whole philosophy behind the, the this whole um, you know robo advising is that the market is efficient, right? So if the market is efficient, there's no point in making any effort trying to beat the market or paying a, like a hefty fee for a manager or a hedge fund manager, or mutual fund manager to try to beat let's say the S&P 500, because since the market is efficient most of the time, after the fees, you'll end up behind the market, right? On average, people don't beat the market. Therefore, if you add the fees, I mean the 2%, 3%, whatever fee that you're paying, you're going to be a bit behind the market on average. So that's, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, uh, when you're dealing with a human investment advisor, obviously it depends on the amount that you're investing. But usually the fees are indeed about one or three percent of asset under management. And how much fees and are we talking about here with these uh, new uh, firms? Well, the new firms are actually uh, very low. It's about 0. 0.15, 0. 0.25 percent. Okay, that's, that's uh, on, Yeah, on asset under management. And also, you know, some, uh, the popularity as well with robo-advisors is that it uh, it's very useful for younger generation of people who doesn't have a lot of uh, investment capital right away. So instead of, go, if you're going with a traditional investment advisor that could require you to have, let's say, maybe 100000 or 250000 initial investment to even open an account, here with, uh, you know, as low as five to $10,000, you can start uh, using the automatic asset locations and investment strategies. Uh, the other thing is that some companies uh, that are getting into this, this, uh, this market um, decide to avoid uh, fees on asset under management altogether so you're basically investing for free and but they their bet is that if 
they do a good job at helping you grow your money and then they could maybe sell additional services that's how they want to basically uh, be compensated down the road what type of additional services like uh, portfolio management and uh, financial planning and that kind of stuff that's right yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, the, the other thing I noticed is that younger like the younger generation have some sort of mistrust for the market in general and they don't really um, I guess trust the markets because they've seen maybe the, the the crisis in 2008 and the stock market, you know, that is you know very unpredictable and very volatile. And I know a lot of my friends, <clears throat> younger uh, generation, they uh, they don't really trust uh, investing in uh, the stock market in stocks in general. So this type of product could have an appeal to them because you know you're not really investing or trying to pick stock or stocks or beat the market or anything of that nature. You're just basically investing in the general market and most of the decisions are really done automatically there's no human uh, intervention really uh, which for some people I I'm, I'm guessing that for some people some generation it could be a bit scary because you don't know you're, like you're basically trusting your money to a machine to a computer yeah <laughs> so is that is that a risk or do you think <laughs> um, I'm not sure because I mean, these companies are, are well-funded. Yeah. I mean, Wealthfront has very, uh, if you actually look at the people behind them who have put the, the venture capital to in, initial venture capital in it, they are very big players, very known people and, and big venture capital firms. Um, I think and they're pretty big. They have like two billion uh, under management. Yeah, actually over the last two years, they've pretty much yeah. went from zero assets to uh, close to $2 billion in um, assets under management and um, but also, of course, their asset under management values uh, changes with the, the, the value of, of the market itself. But uh, they're, they're, growing, they're going well. Uh, but of course, they have still, since they're charged, uh, in the case of Wealthfront, since they're charging such a low fee, uh, they need to have a lot of assets under management just to be able to kind of break even. Uh, so, so far, in case of wealth, uh, Wealthfront, you know, they're, they, May, they're making I mean they, this is really based on the article from The Economist that, that was recently re, uh, released uh, up to date this is pr pretty much October 2015 they made about uh, 7 million dollars in revenue that's it yeah that's on 3 billion dollars in asset under management yet they have a staff of about 100 employees and their costs are around 40 to 50 40 to 50 million dollars per year so there's they're losing money a lot every year and the investors know that but they still keep supporting them and investing new capital to the firm so the business model is kind of a well it it's a it's a volumes i guess it's a volume uh, play because you need a lot of assets to be able to to charge the the little commission that you do make well it seems that for the consumer or the, the investor, it's it sounds pretty good. Low fees, you know, automatic reinvestment and reallocation. Is there any drawbacks? Is there like anything that you know we should be careful or wary about? Because you know, for for investors, I'm sure there's. Well, this um, maybe just I guess be more careful how they decide on their risk profile. Uh, I guess younger people tend to be uh, less risk averse and are willing to take more risk because they have either they think they have nothing to lose or they think that their investment horizon is much 
um, longer or the opposite. They could be too conservative based on the recent events in the financial uh, world in 2007, 2008, and they decide to not you know, touch anything risky. So they could miss out on some investments as well. Um, maybe if they invest the money and they don't follow up on it, so kind of like let the robots take care of it and you worry about something else. Um, there is still some advantages of going with a traditional investment uh, advisor because there is a process of follow-up, re-evaluations of your investment policy statements, your objectives, maybe there's your lifestyle changes, etc. You have a family, whatever. Uh, life events happens. Um, when you are investing with the robo-advisors, you're pretty much on your own. So yes, it costs less. Yes, it's the, the user or the user experience or whatever, it's it's better, it's simpler, you can do it from anywhere you are. You don't have to meet anyone, but your, your, your financial future is entirely in your hands, so you have to be, you have to be careful what you're doing, basically. And you also have no chance whatsoever of like having a crazy good performance, right? Because you're, you know you're, you're investing in ETF, so exchange-traded funds by definitions are pretty much the market, so you can't, there's no chance of you finding a superstar manager that's going to manage your money and like make a lot of money. That's, yeah. you know that from the get-go. You're forfeiting that that uh, that whole aspect of investing, I guess. Yeah. I'm... Which a lot of people are attracted to. The, the, the possibility of, you know, uh, having a manager that can, you know, find the right stocks uh, and manage your portfolio so that it grows exponentially, maybe, yeah. you know, that's, that's what... Uh, you know the, the aspect of the, the whole investment field that a lot of people are attracted to so you don't, you kind of don't have that at all with these new uh... yeah i mean there's I, I think it's a kind of a well-known fact that about a five percent of portfolio managers or hedge fund managers beat the index yeah. everyone else either underperforms or performs as the index yeah. um so if only five percent of the best people in the world can outperform the index you know what are the chances that you as an individual investor if you decide to do your own investment or if you decide to to hire a regular investment advisor that they will necessarily beat the index um, you know maybe if you're looking to work with an investment advisor your uh, objectives are slightly different than necessarily beating the index by x percent um, I find that People who have an investment advisors tend to be maybe more of a passive investors and not necessarily, you know, super risky, alpha-seeking investors. Um, so yeah, you with a robot advisor, you're probably not going to be the index. At the same time, you're not going to lose money by, you know, just um, f falling prey to all those uh, in behavioral traps that we yes. learn on CFA level two, uh, overconfidence or you name it and three <laughs> huh? and level three as well yeah and level three for sure yeah. and uh, so yeah you don't make as much or you make the what the index makes but at least you don't you don't lose and you don't ruin yourself paying all kinds of fees that's right yeah, yeah. you think it's uh, gonna change the industry because it seems to me that it's a it's a pretty good value proposition like even for for me as I worked as a financial advisor I, I like I, I know the, the business and I have friends who are doing that and like to me I mean uh, it's 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 kind of tempting for me if I if I what if I went back in time and I had money to uh, <laughs> invest you know like 
wow, I think I, <laughs> you know, fees of like what it's twenty five basis points yeah. or something. So this is pretty seems pretty good. Do you think it's gonna like change or damage the industry of uh, financial advisors? Um, it's well, it's really hard to say because it's really uh, it's a recent phenomenon. Like uh, Wealthfront, you know, they've they've only been around for two three years, right. um, and the the whole investment management field is such a huge uh, elephant it you know there's a, there's like if there's we, room for everyone <laughs> yeah. well there's room for everyone but there's also there's so much money that it's for sure that the industry is going to be disrupted one way or another uh, just in let's say if we take mutual funds around the world there's over 30 tr uh, 30 trillion yeah uh, dollars invested in mutual funds globally and this is that does not include hedge funds alternative investments or you name it um, if I mean, it's 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 hard to say how it's going to play out because right now, let's say these the the startup companies are basically first there's first movers, so they are benefiting from a lot of basically like a empty uh, or very little competition. But the fact that they're charging such a low uh, percentage on asset under management depend they 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 depend on other selling add-on services or having a lot of assets under management. But if you take someone like a Schwab or a, I don't know, BlackRock or these humongous you know, investment managers, if they decide one day to enter this market, they could technically uh, decide to, okay, well, we're not charging any commission, so it's 0%, and they already have all this pool of investors. Just with those type of tactics, they could technically you know, eradicate all these startups overnight. Um, but they wouldn't be making any money because now yeah. they're making a lot of money on on like because they have pretty hefty fees like one two percent or yeah. whatever compared to charging yeah. zero. <laughs> so well, they, uh, even if they have scale, I mean, if they're not charging yeah. anything, they would they would have to take a hit the financial. Uh, For sure, yeah. it could. I mean, you know, they could take a temporarily hit in order to eliminate the competition yeah. down the road. Uh, but also, robo advisors is not for everyone. I if mean, you're listening to this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Uh, robo advisor is yeah. not for everyone uh, you know it's definitely more appealing to a younger generation yeah. than for older generations who who uh, can they already see have their traditional uh, yeah yeah like even with let's say with uh, Wellfront um, and I have nothing against Wellfront I mean it's just that there's more information available on that company because it's it's one it's of the one leading of the companies yeah. in the industry but uh, in their case you know they have about 30,000 investors uh, and it was uh, the economist was saying that uh, ninety percent of their investors are under the age of fifty, and sixty percent of those are under the age of thirty-five. Okay. So that's 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 big. I mean, you know, it, this is more like the younger generation generation generation, let's say uh, X, yeah. that that have different expectations of companies that they deal with, have different preferences how they. How they interact with they prefer to deal more like through smartphones through applications they prefer to do stuff by themselves not yeah, necessarily they don't need the human uh, the human yeah. touch that the older generation needs and even That's looking right. at their website it looks like they're targeting like a younger crowd and i have the feeling that like they are bringing a lot of people to the investment world that maybe wouldn't invest or they would just not trust this like i said before like they, they they wouldn't necessarily be investors. So it's not like they're stealing necessarily uh, 
clients or assets from traditional managers they could just bring be bringing like new clients to the the investment world that like young people for example that wouldn't uh that would just you know leave cash there instead you know so yeah like new new assets for sure yeah, for sure it's a it's a diff it's it's very interesting how it's going to play out uh, it's hard to say you know how this is going to evolve the next five to ten years you know there are already companies that are um, being created to kind of help advisors uh, fight back or uh, have more tools to basically uh, kind of uh, be more relevant yeah. in the in the world of robo advisors uh, one of these companies is uh, upside it's uh, it was recently launched uh, you know it, it has it has received funding from uh, venture capitalist and basically what this company does is that it provides different um, kind of a white label uh, solutions for advisors to stay relevant with and communicate regularly mm -hmm. to their clients uh, it's something that it's done cheaper so they don't uh, the, the advisors are able to lower their fees a bit without necessarily having the, uh, that impact their their work they're they're using upside is using a lot of like automation automation to help advisors stay in, in touch with um, their their investors trade for them automatically and provide more tools for their investors to kind of keep track of their portfolio and so you know we're already seeing both sides emerge but at the end of the day the it's good for the investor like general or yeah for sure i think yeah. uh, it, it creates general more uh, transparency you know especially on the fees it provides more options for younger generation of, of people who want to invest or for older generations who are simply not happy with their performance up to date especially after the financial crisis um, it's kind of like democrat democratizing yeah. the financial industry uh, for the better i think if whatever happens with the robo advisors at least i think it's going to be a a big catalyst for further improvement in the industry. Although for someone working in the, the financial field, it might create more competition. So, you know, if for example, the asset location decisions are made by, yeah. a, by a robot, you know, you need maybe less analysts and uh, less portfolio managers, less humans involved in this, uh, this, this decision-making process or the investment process. So it might signal maybe uh, a shift in the financial world maybe it, although it's good for as a as a consumer it's good but maybe as a someone that's working in the financial field or trying to get a job um i kind of see something that could be dangerous unless you may make yourself more relevant by knowing you know how to code you know software that can uh yeah uh, like do these type of uh, asset location algorithms and, and, and everything so and we're kind of already seeing that maybe that'll be the subject of a another podcast but we're seeing that the skills necessary to be relevant in the financial world are kind of changing yeah. and it's like i've seen the the cfa curriculum being reflecting that more and more before i remember there, there wasn't any chapter on technical analysis analysis for example it okay. was just pure fundamental and now slowly the integrated chapter and it's covering more stuff just to be more relevant right for the the, the actual job market because it's no longer just pure you know fundamental analysis it's really uh, you need to know like a little bit more about even behavioral finance which is a 
pretty recent field. It's uh, I think it started like in the 80s or so. You know, to make yourself relevant in the job market or in the financial world, you need to adapt your your skills. And I think this is a great example of that. Uh, this new robo advising uh, business. Yeah. Well, I think every time there, there was a a big change, a technological change in any industry, it's kind of forced people for better or for worse to adapt and to make the industry a bit better um you know it it, like the technology rate is already having a a big impact in capital markets just to like the uh, if we look at how the trading is done it's mostly algorithms you know like uh black markets or or not black markets but uh what is that like uh, pools black pools yeah yeah, high frequency trading it's you know when you when you're trading on the markets you think that you're actually buying from other people but most of the time it could be you're buying from other computers yeah that are I think trading it's one third or something like that of the tr- trades that are uh, just machines you know yeah. yeah I would I, I would even be I wouldn't be surprised if, if it's more so yeah. maybe going in the in the future and this is even something that it, that CFA level 3 covers the uh, kind of like the role of a trader in the uh, you know in the world where trading is done automatically by, by algorithms it's uh, I think it's going to be the same thing with a with an investment advisor if or with portfolio managers you know there's maybe it's on one hand we can say that maybe it's better that some of the things are done by computers because it loom, it, it eliminates a lot of risks it makes things faster makes things more optimized and um, and then you're free instead of doing doing those calculations or the allocations yourself you're free to actually focus on something that for now machines or computers still can't do this is more like a relationship, uh, re- relational ba- business basically. So you're trying to educate your clients, uh, keep them informed about you know what's the latest uh, uh, news that's happening in the industry, what, what's going on with the taxes. Let's say you know you're trying to help them. Yeah, tax you. minimization and yeah. uh, there's there's some things that it's a, a bit more difficult to to be left for a computer to make like decisions. That, yeah, um, for now, for yeah. sure. You know, especially like if um, if. You, you're dealing with with wealthier uh, and wealthier clients that have you know multiple sources of, of income they could have sources of income in different types in different parts of the world different jurisdictions or even in this let's say in a given country you can have different in the states for example you can have different rules in different uh, actually states where you live or you work etc um, I think it's it will be more and more important to to be able to see a client's global picture, to help them really understand how to view their financial situation from different points and different, uh, uh, I guess, with different scenarios as well. Yeah, this is a great segue to the uh, the other topic, which is basically, you know, valuation models and what is really relevant in the. the I guess the real world because that's yeah. what we're talking about here right like the, yeah. what we're learning as part of the cfa curriculum and you know in finance in general and what you're going to apply in real life so sometimes obviously there's a i would i wouldn't say a mismatch but you know the skills that you learn are not necessarily what you use when you you actually get a job so this is uh i'm i meet a lot of students uh for cfa and other financial uh programs and Sometimes they ask me, okay, I'm learning all of that stuff, like dividend discount model, this and that. How often do you actually use that yourself, you know, if when you worked, you know, at a you know, financial firm or a bank or financial institution, 
often you use all of these you know models the black shoals uh, models and all of that do you actually use that or are you just learning them just for <laughs> just for fun yeah like for you for example you worked in the financial field how or what percentage of let's say the cfa curriculum are you actually you need or actually implementing you know uh well very little actually because i mean there's some stuff that you learn in the books or cfa yeah. uh, institute or at the university and then obviously <clears throat> there's what you learn on the job when you're actually working for someone uh financial company or a hedge fund or whatnot they you know they usually have their own ways of doing exactly. things yeah. They have their ways of following something, um, of seeing if if an investment makes sense or not, how to look at it. It's not necessarily just the numbers at the end of the day, but it's also the relational business. I mean, when you're meeting with uh, portfolio managers to think, or with different companies or CEOs or CFOs, that's how you get a, also a better feel of if it's a good company or a good stock or right. a good mutual fund or whatnot. The models, it's they. I think the models. Well, I mean, you'll talk about the models uh, yeah. soon, but they're 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 good. They're they're a starting point, but they should definitely not be viewed as the end point. Uh, because I mean, like the the, the uh, dividend discount model. They basically it's you're saying okay, well, how much is the dividend going to grow? Uh, if it's a growing dividend, right? future dividend divided by the return on investment minus the growth rate yeah. you know but how do you use that if let's say a company does not have dividends or can you really value like a general electric that has you know i don't know how many dozens of industries of sectors with a dividend discount model yeah. or or apple that pays paid one dividend in i don't know how many years does that really apply yeah, yeah. and what i've seen in the the industry this is just my my personal experience is that you know the numbers are always kind of used but to back up something that's or decision or an investment decision that's based on something else which could be like you mentioned you know you know how the company is going and maybe the the uh, portfolio manager spoke with the, the the ceo of the company they had interviews with the people involved in the company they or they have a general feeling about the company or they have the industry is uh, is is a good industry but very often numbers and valuation models will be used as sort of backup because the, the the sad truth is that you can make models say whatever you want to for example we, we spoke about the dividend discount model well you can input any growth rate that you want that would kind of fit your 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 outlook or your your view of the company if you think that the stock is going up well you can input a, a high growth rate that will yield a price that is high right that is above the current price and you say boom you know, yeah. you have <laughs> your stock is going up, but it's not necessarily based on the, 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 the intrinsic valuation from the model. It's really based on your, your opinion that could be based on many things. It could be based on, you know, discussion, like I said, with a company could be based on even technical analysis could be based on the industry analysis or the way that you see the, uh, you, are you expecting a big contract, for example, for, for some company. And very often you'll try to justify that with some some type of valuation model now in terms of uh, the the models that are actually used dividend discount model to be honest with you i've, I've seen a lot of analyst reports and um I've, I've never really saw that used anywhere it's always the first one you learn even in fun if you remember in yeah. university that's the first model that you 
like even introductory finance classes, you learn the dividend discount model. That's the, the, the main model, but I've never seen that in real life used yeah. at all. So, <laughs> well, you have to learn it, but uh, that's that's pretty much uh, it. The discounted cash flow, like for example, the free cash flow to equity holders, free cash flow to the firm, this is used. Uh, this is used. You're gonna have to estimate the cash flow for a company, um, and usually it's used in combination with the multiples valuation approach. So, for example, you're gonna have to estimate for let's say the next ten years the free cash flow of the firm and discount those and you're gonna have a terminal value at the end, which is based on some multiple. It could be, uh, you know, a multiple of uh, the price to cash flow, price to uh, earnings per share, so PE. Uh, it, usually it's PE or price to cash flow. That's the, the two multiples that are used, but that's used for the terminal value. So it's, I guess, a combination of the discount, um, discount discounted cash flow and the multiples approach. That's used very often to to come up with a target price. But no one really in the, <laughs> I wouldn't, I don't like to say no one, but in the industry, like, I guess experts or um, like people in the industry, they don't really use target price or they don't trust. Like I wouldn't personally, I, I worked in the industry, I study all of that. I wouldn't trust a, a target price. It doesn't mean anything. It's nice for some clients, you know, they have a, you know, a, a target price that's that's great, but uh, it, they're usually wrong, you know, and and analysts are sometimes rated in terms of how often they they are right about their target price or their assessment or yeah, how close they are, but you know because the inputs are always in a way subjective, the inputs are always the same, right? It's the discount rate, it's the growth rate, and these two things, especially the terminal growth rate, um, well, these two things could you know you can change them slightly and you'll have a a vastly different outcome, right? You're, you're, if you can change like one percentage, uh, one percentage point, your growth rate or increase it by 1%, let's say, and then you have a completely different price. And very often, if you, if you ran the, uh, any type of discounted cash flow model, you'll see that the slightest change and you have like, crazy prices. Very often you get crazy prices when you actually run the numbers on uh, you, if you use the free cash flow to a, the firm model, for example, you'll end up with like a price of thousand dollar or five cents, or you know, it doesn't like. I'm not gonna say it doesn't work, but um, it it depends a lot on the, your inputs. It's uh, you can run Excel all day, but um, and predict like ten years down the road, but exactly who knows How, what's gonna happen? No one knows, tomorrow. especially the competitive forces. Yeah. Like we said, for example, the the wealth front is disrupting the or maybe will disrupt the uh, the whole industry you can't really forecast a company like that coming in the industry and disrupting the whole thing but it it happens more often than you think right it's not like it's similar to the, the black swan story right so it it happens more often than than would be forecasted by any any type of model so I guess it's good to learn them, and you're if you're looking for a job in the financial world, you're gonna have to do a lot of number crunching. Uh, your Excel skills needs to be on par, right? You need you need to be pretty good at Excel and building models and uh, on Excel. You know that's 100% true. But in terms of their ability to predict the price or their actual use by the portfolio manager to make a, an investment decision, 
Um, not not really, to be honest. Um, I've I've kind of seen two types of um, in the industry, like two types of, and I'm talking about hedge fund managers as well as mutual fund managers. But there's kind of two types of investors or portfolio managers. Some are more traditional or like fundamentals. So yes, they'll use these models, but along with other more, I guess, subjective. Like gut feeling. Or yeah, something. Gut, yeah, gut feeling is not really something you learn <laughs> in the CFA. But to be honest, I've, I've, I've heard that from managers like uh, numerous times, you know, like they have a, a gut feeling. And obviously it's not nice for a client to hear that. Like a gut feeling is not really something you can back up, you know, but... Yeah. And very often it's based on experience, you know, gut feeling is, is something like like older investors that they've been around, you know, a couple of crises, they, they kind of know the market. And to be honest, gut, gut feeling is not like necessarily a, a bad a bad thing. You know, they, they've seen patterns before and they've seen the type of companies that succeed and that do not succeed. So gut feeling is, is not a good financial indicator in terms of what you're learning, the, the theory, but in real life it's used a lot like i would say even most investors or most most professional uh, you know money managers they they're this it's part of the ingredients for sure i'm not gonna say it's the, the main thing that all the decisions decisions are made by gut feeling but if the gut feeling is strong enough uh you can make the numbers back it up for That's, sure oh, but it makes sense to in a way not to rely on gut feeling but to definitely use it when making a decision uh, potential investment mm -hmm. because I mean as you said like the models are usually the last step so you initially start searching for investment opportunity by using different filters right you're, yeah. you're trying to find basically like okay let's take this sector and let's take 10 companies that are that are based on specific filters or search criterias are worth looking into yeah then you find them and then the logical step would be to actually go and meet the company meet the management, visit their, their offices, visit their plants. If they have, you know, places uh, or of operations around the world, it would make sense to actually travel there and seeing what's going on, etc. And I mean, when you're meeting people, it's mostly using gut feeling that you yeah. have an idea of whether those people are honest, whether they're, you know, they're, they care about their business, what's their integrity, etc there's not one model that can you know replicate how you feel about a manager meeting him or her face to face so i guess in that case kind of like past experience gut feeling it definitely plays a, a huge part of your decision you know sometimes like the the numbers could 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 be perfect you 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 would think oh this this makes total sense but then you're visiting the the, the, the plant, you're, you're meeting people who work there, etc. And you have a very bad feeling about, yeah. okay, something is, something's not right here. Like, uh, I, I don't know. So, Employees are depressed or yeah. something, or uh, <laughs> Some, maybe, maybe they, sometimes the, the, the prospects of the company can be seen from just talking with, you know, the, the, the management, yeah. you know, if the prospects are not there, they have more information, you know, they have this asymmetrical information, right? They have more information about the prospect of their business because they know, you know, the contracts that are coming up or, or whatever. And then if, if you talk to them and they're like all depressed and like, you can see that something's, something's amiss there and something's not, not right. So this, this is all like little things like that. And it's, it's really the, the process of investing for, and that's the first category that I guess the traditional approach is really 
yes, the models, yes, the numbers, but also you know meeting with the managers. It's a collection of of different factors. So it is not one single uh, you know decision making uh, uh, process or um, indicator. It's really a, a a collection of different things. So the, yes, they look at the financial statements. Uh, they might even look at the chart. They look at uh, the, the the industry. So they look at, at a few things. This is, I guess, the traditional way of managing assets uh, for a portfolio manager. The, the, the other component also, obviously, is um, looking at what other people are doing. So uh, very often, portfolio manager don't want to be left uh, <laughs> with, like, they don't want to make an outlandish call on the market or to be the only one wrong, right? Mm -hmm. They rather be wrong with the rest of the people, for example, by being bullish on, I don't know, the energy sector, for example, if everyone else is bullish, rather than saying, yeah, okay, I'm bearish, but they're the only one, and then they get, they're wrong, it's it's called career risk, so that means mm -hmm. uh, no one would want to hire them if they were the only one wrong and everyone else was right. So that's another uh, component. So very often you, you you see some type of hurting behavior, you know, and or even the, like at the very worst is that they can just uh, hug the index, which means they they're gonna just replicate pretty much what whatever's in the in the index. And you see that more often, I guess, with um, mutual fund managers, uh, especially long only mutual fund managers. They'll it's, in Canada here, it's a, it's a big it's a big thing. Like people are are in investors or portfolio manager or just you know pretty much investing in the the the, the main index here yeah right so the, instead of making their own call they don't want to make make calls that are very very different from the uh, the index so that's another component of the whole decision making I guess that's the traditional approach um, the other approach is a more and it relates to what we're talking about by you know algorithms uh, automated investment this is the, the more modern approach, which is basically scientists, really, more than investors that are making the investment decision or building models to sometimes automate trades, but it's very often based on other people's behavior rather than on the fundamental or intrinsic value of the company. So these type of investors don't really care what the company is making, the sales and the numbers of the company. They don't care about the financial statements they care really about how it's trading so they'll make themselves a couple of uh, a set of rules that are very often based on technical analysis or on uh, trading behavior by other traders uh, and make their investment work it's not really investment or trading decision based on that and this i guess category invest of uh, investing is uh, becoming well it's it's been around for a while if you like uh, couple of years but it's uh, it's growing in popularity because it's automated and it's um, it works very often it, it works a lot of large uh, investors or hedge fund managers use automated trading um, based on a set of very obscure rules you obviously you don't know about about these rules or the algorithms that goes into uh, into play and this is another completely different types of uh, type of investment, which is completely unrelated to any of the valuation model you're going to learn and as part of the CFA. And it's pretty much, very often, it's not even financial 
people with a finance background it's, it could be like an engineering background or physicist, a physicist or uh, yeah. I know there's a local uh, hedge fund manager here is uh, I think he was a physicist we we met the other day yeah. and uh, he's uh, like a PhD and he has no real financial uh, finance background but he's uh, he's pretty it's pretty intense in terms of his math skills is on, is on par and uh, you know it's a completely different type of investment and it's could be worth looking into if you're if you want to go in the financial uh, world it's it's a sought after skill you know more so i would say than knowing your di dividend discount model but you know sure. inside out yeah and i guess maybe if uh, you know if the whole analytical data mining or uh, crazy engineering programming <laughs> skills are are not necessarily your your forte uh, you know maybe it's totally fine. I mean, not you know, finance is not run by pro programmers or engineers. They're mostly yet. <laughs> not yet for sure. Or algorithms. They're they're kind of they help the industry, but really the people who make the decisions are people who have very good uh, people skills. So you know, maybe also if you're not really good in 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 really advanced math or something, you know, you can concentrate on on trying to develop your people skills and yeah. and your business development skills. You know and because the sometimes the hardest uh, thing to do is convince someone to to part with you know his or her hard-earned money and allocate I don't know even if it's ten thousand dollars or fifty or a hundred or a million dollars to to you you know why you who are who, what makes you special why should they trust you with their savings etc sometimes it could be retirement savings or life savings so no matter how good in math you are. You need to be able to to relate to people on a different level than than finance. So having soft skills, having people skills, is is extremely valuable. You know, this I think this is something going back to a to kind of like close maybe make a, a loop. The first topic of robot advisors is something that no matter how powerful your computers or your robots are, or how smart your engineers are it's for now it's not some like people skills it's not something that a robot can do yeah. so it could be definitely the uh, something that you can look into yeah and it's something that can distinguish yourself as you know in, yeah. in the very competitive industry you know if you have the people skill and this is sort of how it used to be before before this whole computer thing uh, yeah. started it used to be a very people-oriented uh, business where you, you sit with your broker and you know and it's it's really um, the old school approach and it's it's also the the lo like longer horizon uh, investing versus short fast you know trades uh which is which is good maybe if you for for some people but uh you'll always have clients or people behind that needs um you know a longer term approach because you know at the end of the day if you're young and you're investing money it's for your retirement so you don't care about necessarily about the the short term uh, the short term you care more about the long term you know asset allocation tax minimization all of that so that's there's always going to be a room i guess for someone that's really good in first of all people skills but also in in i guess traditional finance as way one way to put it yeah all right well that that was a good start yeah discussion. definitely yeah, nice so let's let's wrap it up there yeah uh of course we invite you to uh Contact us if you have any questions about 
uh, anything that you see on the website, you know, if the CFA exam, level one, level two, level three, the uh, level one December 2015 exam is about two, three weeks uh, away. Uh, we hope your studies are going well. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. Yeah, and if you're studying for level two and three, we're gonna have a, a we're gonna drop a new book for uh, a new study guide actually in uh, in about two months, uh, early 2016. We'll have the uh, the June uh, level two and level three uh, exam edition. Uh, so that's uh, something to look out for. Yeah, both books can be pre-ordered right now. Yep. All you need to do is just go on our website, financialanalystwarrior.com/cfa-study-guide. And that's where you can see the CFA level one study bundle. Uh, and I would say that, you know, although the exam, the, C the level one is only a couple of weeks off, I still think that the, especially the, the uh, CFA level one uh, starter kit that has the top 100 mistakes to avoid on the CFA level one exam is very valuable, uh, especially for people who are writing the exam the first time. Um, if you haven't done the CFA level one before, First time you write it could be a bit of a, of a, of a shocker. Yeah. You know, um, like six hours of writing stuff, multiple choice, it's a fast paced, no time to waste. Um, and so you wanna put all the chances on your side. So definitely make sure to, to grab your copy of the, uh, the starter kit or even the CFA level one study bundle that has all the, all the valuable stuff to get you ready for the exam. Um, if, also, if you haven't done so, uh, definitely subscribe to our newsletter on our website and uh, Leave yeah. us a positive review on on iTunes and subscribe to our our podcast for sure. Yeah, and if you have uh, topics, uh, suggestion topics for uh, for our podcast or articles or research or anything, we uh, we invite you to uh, to send it to us and we'll uh, we'll we'll talk about it in the next uh, podcast. Perfect. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Cheers. Bye. <laughs>